It is a great privilege to be with you here this morning to worship the one Lord in the unity of the one Spirit. And uh, I'd ask you now to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and I will be reading this passage before we consider it. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 41. Acts 2, verses 1 to 41. Hear now, O church, the word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. May the Lord give understanding into his word and bless it for the glory of Christ to his church. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. You are the God who speaks, even as Daniel declared, uh, Lord, there were none among the pagans who could reveal truth But Daniel knew the God who revealed mysteries. And indeed, Lord God, you are the God who speaks. Jesus Christ, you are the Word and Holy Spirit. You grant our hearts, speaking to them and even the interpretation of your words that we might understand it. And we pray, Spirit, for your illumination this morning. Guide my thoughts. Guide my lips. Grant me pure speech, O God. And to my hearers, grant meditation, Uh, exaltation in in you and in Christ. And Lord, we pray obedience. For the sake of Christ and in his name we pray. Amen. We just finished reading what some have said, and I think it would be hard to argue, uh, what is the greatest sermon ever preached. Certainly one of the most powerful sermons. As a man, namely Peter, was anointed with a tongue of fire and spoke with that same fire and melted the hearts of many uh, who had even been responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. Praise the Lord. What I want us to consider this morning, however, is not just a singular speech, but rather the idea the theme of the purity of speech, a new language, if you will, given to the church upon the day of Pentecost. I think of the words of Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, which says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. 
From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And here in this passage, the prophet foretells of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, of the coming of the new covenant in terms of new speech, a pure speech that is being gonna, going to be given to the people. That may seem like perhaps an odd frame of reference to speak of the new life that we have in Christ. But God cares deeply about our language, our speech, and in fact, in a comprehensive way, not only how we relate or speak to one another, although that is certainly a part of it. God cares, first and foremost, fundamentally with, with our conversation with him and how we speak of him. Do we give thanks to him? Do we call upon his name and not take the names of any other God upon our lips? As David says in Psalm 18. What about an inner speech? God cares about the speech that occurs in our hearts as well. For the psalmist says in Psalm 26, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. And then also in Psalm 15, concerning the one who will dwell on your holy hill, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That inner conversation that we to kind of carry on with ourselves regularly, that is to be characterized too by a pureness of speech that is formed by the word of God. And then that speech is oriented outwards as well. Again, the psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Psalm 22, that famous psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so God cares about our speech in a comprehensive way, and it is right for us to consider this theme or this thread in the rich tapestry of what we find here in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And he comes and he brings a regeneration to those who hear. We want to consider among so many other things we could consider in this rich passage, the idea of a restored, pure speech. A restored, pure speech that is first from God the Father, that is secondly in the Holy Spirit, and that it is thirdly about, oriented towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will work through our passage under those three headings. Uh, some of what we will take in will do so very quickly. It is a very large passage that we're considering. And then I want to conclude with three exhortations. So firstly, let us consider that this pure and restored speech is from God the Father. The opening of our passage states, when the day of Pentecost arrived, or more literally in the Greek, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. That may be a rather strange turn of phrase, awkward uh, phrasing, and yet it, it serves to heighten the anticipation that we ought to arrive to, with as we come to Pentecost. And indeed, this anticipation was built into 
the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, and this festival, one of three major pilgrim festivals that the Jews observed and which were commanded in the Old Testament. Pentecost uh, also commemorated the beginning of the wheat harvest, and so it was a time of great celebration and joy. Some historians have noted that Jerusalem would swell with all of the peoples that would come, all the Jews that would come and proselytes from different parts of the globe. And in fact, that perhaps because of its place in the calendar and the favorable weather around that time of year, that Pentecost was uh, the the most greatly observed feast, um, even amongst the others. But the anticipation for the disciples was even greater than for the average Jew going going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Pentecost. They were waiting upon the promise of the Spirit from the Father. If you look back to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Similarly, Jesus stated in John 14, verses 25 and 26, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so it is as they are obediently waiting for the promise of the Father together that we see in verses 2 and 3 that there comes from heaven suddenly a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues appeared to them and rested upon them. So there is a descent from heaven of wind or the sound of wind and of tongues of fire, both of these common elements in Old Testament theophanies, appearances of God. For instance, as when the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai to give to his people Israel his law and his covenant. So, in Acts chapter 1, Christ ascends, and then now in response to the finished God-pleasing work of the mediator, the man Christ Jesus, there is now a descent from God and, of course, of the Holy Spirit as well. And it's crucial to note the role of God the Father, or you might even say of God conceived generally, because of the background of this passage in the events at Babel. And so I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 11. And I want us to consider that in many ways, the events at Pentecost serve as a reversal of the events at the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis chapter 11, the people here are gathered together, but in rebellion to God's expressed command to Noah and his sons to spread out through all the earth. Itself, that was a echo of what is called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, which included, uh, again, spreading and filling the earth. Now, the rebellion of the people 
that, that gathered on the plains of Shinar in Babylon. Uh, in verse 4 is particularly noted by three things. First of all, there's the construction of a great tower, which was to reach up to heaven. And historically, we know that this would have served both a political and religious function. It was highly symbolic and it illustrated a reaching up from man, starting with man, to be with God and to attain to God. Second of all, we see that they desire to make a name for themselves. That is, that their purposes are not God-glorifying, God-honoring, but man-glorifying. They are are self-seeking in their motives. Thirdly, and uh, quite explicitly, they say, lest we be dispersed. And, And again, if you know the background of these parts of Genesis, you know that they are saying, listen, unless we obey the word of God. We want to do everything we can to not obey what God has stated. Whether that was absolutely explicit for every single person gathered there or not. The the narrator is clearly putting these pieces together to illustrate what was happening uh, in their anti-God perspective. They are treating God's command as a curse instead of a blessing. So what does God do? Well, he, he, he comes down to drive them apart, confusing their lips, mixing up their language, driving them away from this monument to their own glory. The peoples are dispersed. Their unity was used for anti-God purposes, and so the Lord separates them. Now, I want you to note the parallels and contrasts in those parallels between Babel and Pentecost. Whereas at Babel, the people gathered in defiance to God, at Pentecost, the apostles gathered in obedience to God in Christ. Whereas at Babel, the peoples uh, themselves worked to ascend to heaven. At Pentecost, the apostles waited for the Holy Spirit to descend, that grace of God. Whereas at Babel, their language was confused and their unified tongue was, was split. At Pentecost, divided tongues came together and people all heard one glorious truth. Whereas at Babel, the people were dispersed in disunity, here at Pentecost, all peoples come together, united by the Holy Spirit for the sake of Christ. Whereas at Babel, the people want to make a name for themselves, at Pentecost, the people hear the apostles telling of the mighty works of God. And so we see in the events at Pentecost a reversal of the curse of Babel. We see that God has indeed granted the pure speech promised in Zephaniah. Well, let's go back to our passage in Acts chapter 2. And let's consider that the restoration of this pure speech was in the Holy Spirit. 
with the elements particularly of fire and wind serving to symbolize the power and the sovereignty, or you could say the freedom of the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we see that the gift of the Holy Spirit brings about a gift of tongues, which is under the control of the Holy Spirit. The gift, that is of tongues, is controlled by the gift, namely of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to comment generally this morning about the gift of tongues. Our focus won't allow the time to delve into that. Nevertheless, it is very clear from this first gift of tongues, at the very least, that these were human languages at this time, unknown to the speakers, which enabled the gathered peoples from many different places to understand what they were saying in their own language. It says in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. Perhaps a slightly exaggerative phrase, but the exaggerative language is important. It's important for what it portends. The believers, and perhaps chiefly the disciples, are to be God's witnesses to the end of the earth. They are to make disciples, we know, of all nations. And as it says in Luke 24, verses 47 to 49, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, the people's response to what they are seeing and hearing is bewilderment, verse 6, amazement and astonishment, verse 7, and amazement and perplexity, verse 12. It is clear that this is a work, a supernatural work of God. In, in the Holy Spirit, the one who blows how he wishes in ways that are untraceable by men. Moving to verse 9, we see a list of various regions and peoples, which is broken down into roughly four groups of four, providing for us not only an impressive and pretty extensive list, but also serving to highlight and symbolize the four corners of the earth. In other words, once again, the, the universal aspect of the mission of Jesus Christ. But verse 11 adds an important detail, which is the subject of the apostles' speech, which is the mighty works of God. Now, the statement here is very general, and it is what the people interpret the apostles' message to be. But given what Peter goes on to say, it seems certain that the content related more explicitly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death for sin, his triumphant resurrection, and his ascension. Now, the people had all sorts of questions. They were bewildered. Some even mocked. And Peter answers in verse 14 and following by citing the prophet Joel, 
particularly chapter 2, verses 28 to 30, which mentions the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, accompanying gifts and signs, and which finishes by saying, again, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, alluding to, emphasizing the global implications of Christ's death and resurrection. And it is fitting that it is the coming of the Holy Spirit which ushers in this global mission. Because the idea of spirit connotes no constraint, no limit, no boundary. And the Holy Spirit himself is the one we see in Scripture not only extending the work of God, but also bringing it round to its fulfillment and completion. That is to say that there is in Scripture an aspect of the Holy Spirit's work that is not only unfolding, but enfolding. And the Holy Spirit does this work of unfolding and bringing the saints in, the enfolding, by focusing the apostles and their hearers upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this pure, restored speech is from God the Father, It is in the Holy Spirit, and it has as its purpose and subject matter the Lord Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 22, Peter gets at the heart of the gospel message. Most everyone there gathered at Pentecost had at least heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone would have known that he had uh, done mighty works, wonders, and signs by the power of God. But when it came to his cruel and unjust death, Peter points out that although the responsibility for this greatest of sins lay upon the people of Jerusalem and her leaders, yet, Peter says, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That in spite of man's greatest sins, yet God is at work bringing together his sovereign plan and will. He will never be thwarted. And praise God that he brings about the glory of his name, giving to his people, or giving to his son a people, and displaying his varied graces in bringing in his people and his church. And so in verse 24, we read God raised him up. Being both the living God, as the ancient creeds say, very God of very God, as well as righteous, innocent man, It was not possible for Christ to be held by death. And Peter cites Psalm 18 as proof. Now progressing from the resurrection to the ascension and enthronement of Christ, Peter says in verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter then cites Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, and then he delivers his summation. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter, anointed by a fiery tongue, speaks by the Holy Spirit with fiery power, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the people, many of whom were responsible for Christ's death. They were cut to the heart and they asked what they should do. 
Peter's response is this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if there are any here this morning who do, who do not know the, the gift of forgiveness, that is to have your sin debt forgiven, to be washed of your shame, to have the fear of death destroyed. If there are any who desire to be free of sin's bondage, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for right living, to find the purpose and the peace which alone is found in a loving Father, Repent now and be baptized. This means to turn away from all your sin towards faith in God, trusting that Jesus died on the cross to bear your punishment, and be baptized confessing the name of Jesus, like Peter, declaring the mighty work of God for you with pure speech and a pure conscience. If you are already a believer in Christ, I want to finish this morning with three exhortations. Firstly, joyfully proclaim the gospel as evidence of the Holy Spirit's filling. In the book of Acts, not just here on the day of Pentecost, the filling or the, or the coming of the Holy Spirit is strongly associated with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so, if we ask ourselves as we ought, how is it that we can experience the Holy Spirit? How is it that we can be filled? One of the answers, perhaps one of the chief answers, is to say we need to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only to our friends, but also to strangers. Just for over just a year now, a small group from our church has gone out to the SkyTrain and bus stations around our area to do street evangelism. And even though it still frightens me <laughs> to do so, I feel the presence and the filling and the joy of the Holy Spirit in few other ways as when I am proclaiming. And perhaps even more ironically, when every once in a while, not often, I am derided or insulted uh, in doing so. If you will not proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are stopping the work of the Holy Spirit which is meant to flow through you to others. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamedly. Secondly, make room for the nations in your home and in the church. In Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And yes, there is a context there in regards to Jew and Gentile in particular, but there is a broader principle that all the nations have come together in Christ, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Given that Babel has been reversed, you must carve out space in your life, in your home, in your church 
for peoples of different cultures and nations, practicing hospitality even when it is difficult, making sure that your church practices appeal to a broad group of peoples, not because you know, we're going to come up with anything new, but simply because rather than holding to whatever our traditions may be, we're simply going to do what this word says. That will draw together the, the peoples of the nations. Lastly, this morning, center Christ in unity and praise. I offer for your consideration this morning a thought Namely, that the evangelical church is largely focused upon Christ in a slightly detached way. We have made much of evangelism for Christ. And as I have just mentioned, that is good. We want sinners to be saved. We want Christ's dominion and glory to spread. We want to fulfill the Great Commission. Moreover, we have made much of the worship of Christ, and this too is good. We work at excellence in our songs of praise and in the instrumentation, in the crafting of our services with purpose. We want people to experience the true worship of Christ when we gather together. This too is good. But from where I am standing looking at the evangelical church, I don't think that we have made much of Christ himself. We have centered evangelism for him and worship about him, but have we centered him? Have you centered him in all of your life? Or perhaps are we still building a structure up to the heavens like those at Babel? And our unity as churches, including, of course, the unity of various peoples, is it centered on Christ himself? Or is it centered on all the things that we do for him and the ministries that we have as a church? Or does it come to a center and to its terminus in the fact that we, with one voice, worship the lamb who was slain? Many languages, many tongues, many lips, one voice, Pure, holy, restored speech. Revelation 5, 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, slain before the foundation of the the world. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who fills as well as regenerates. And, And Lord, we thank you that you are the sum of our worship and our joy, our great treasure. Help us to speak with that pure, restored speech that characterizes our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the sake of Christ and his glory in this world, we pray. Amen.